Let me um, echo something that Jason mentioned a moment ago about VBS because I know it's one of those uh, vehicles that we have driven for a long time. Wednesday night we were in cafe. I mentioned to the group that was there that I think what we do at that time where we share a meal together and then we look at Scripture and we pray for each other, we have a very specific time of prayer uh, as a fellowship. That is an ancient thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's one of those, you know, moments or events on the weekly calendar that we've kept very purposefully because we think it reflects uh, followers of Christ and the lifestyle that we've had from the very beginning when Jesus met uh, with his friends in that upper room. You know what? VBS doesn't go back quite that far. <laughs> it, it, I don't know where it started. I get probably in the 40s or 50s. Somebody can tell me, but I can tell you this. I went, and it was my very first uh, Christian church spiritual experiences. I didn't grow up in a home where we participated in in a local church. We didn't talk about spiritual things a lot. Um, We just just didn't. That was kind of a a separate thing. We weren't anti-God, but we just really were not there. However, every summer I was shipped off to visit my grandparents in the country and it always just so happened that it would coincide with vacation Bible school. <laughs> and now as an adult, I realized there was, that was a very planned thing and uh, stayed there for the week and would go to vacation Bible school. And as I, as I think back about this and as Jason was sharing, that's probably the first experience, probably the first place I ever heard the gospel. Now, I am a grandfather, and my grandkids are going to be here anyway, but if they weren't, do you know what I would do? I would bring them in to stay a week with me, and I'd take them to vacation Bible school. And during the day, I would take them to the pancake house or the mountains or, you know, Dollywood. I'd do something like that with them, and every night I'd have them back here for that. So... Grandparents, I'm looking at you. Parents, I know it's, it's a little bit of a thing. Maybe it's out of your schedule, but I tell you what, you can change a child's life and then a, a family's life. So that's my little spiel about that because I have a personal um, part of that s- story. All right, here's where we are. This morning, our text is going to be a, a book that you've probably heard of, maybe haven't read it a lot, um, but... It's the book of Esther. And we're going to look at chapter 2. Now, normally, people tend, and guys like me, when they speak on this, or if you go to a Bible study, or if you think about it, you always go to chapter 4. Chapter 4. In fact, I just looked up sermons online about how many, how many people out there, it's always chapter 4. And that's often the only thing maybe you remember or know or have even heard about in the book of Esther. But I want us today to read chapter 2. Now, I feel a little risky today because of the nature of this message. And you guys know me, those of you who are regular attenders here at Calvary or members, you know that I am a very conservative guy and I approach this scripture uh, like that. But I have a little 
unorthodox view of what's happening in this book. We're going to look at it a little differently, and um, later you can send me emails. I probably won't answer it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, I want you to hang in there with me and listen to that today. So I've chosen this one passage of Scripture to kind of cut this open and unpack the, the big deal of what I think God's teaching us through this book, uh, one of the things at least. So chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King uh, Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him, and wouldn't you know, the young men had this idea. It's such a guy thing. Hey, we got an idea. Let beautiful women... (laughs) Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, uh, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. That was his job. He's in charge of the women. Okay. Um, Let their cosmetics be given to them. Ladies, there's a scriptural right there. Spend what you want, buy whatever you want, and then just show him right there it is in the Bible. Um, get their cosmetics and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. What? This pleased the king, you think? <laughs> I like that idea, fellas. Yeah, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconi, uh, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, Was that just in the Bible? And was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, uh, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now, uh, excuse me, and the young women pleased him, the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics, and ladies, it just gets better, and her portion of food. It's like a buffet. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women, women to the best place in the harem. So there's obviously some kind of a a hierarchy or an elimination system, a round robin, something going on here, um, elimination process. Esther had not um, made known her people. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. It was the ancient version of Twitter or Instagram. He was, he was getting updates. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King 
uh, Ahasuerus, uh, after being 12 months under the regulation of, for the women, they did this for a year, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, <laughs> how long does it take you? I don't know. It, it, took, it took them a year under whatever plan you're using, if it's Weight Watchers or whatever. They went a year on this. Uh, this program, six months with all of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for the women. I don't even know what that's about. When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. She got to keep the free samples, okay? (laughs) In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, and I suggest that as a name, if you're going to have a child this year and you want a Bible name, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. She's getting a little inside. You see what's going on here? Because he likes her. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King um, Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. And I like this last sentence because it's got kind of an American political feel to it. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. (laughs) I don't know a lot about that. What an interesting story. I had a man suggest something to me once that I've done for years, and I I think it's 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 a, a brilliant thing for you to do. I'm not a Bible scholar, but for all of my adult life, I've read scripture and I've studied it. And typically that means that when I'm interested or curious about a passage of scripture or a verse, I will go to the commentaries. I will go to the history. I will go to the language. I will begin to see what others have said about this. And he said, Dan, before you do that, go back and just read it again. And just read it as if you had never read it before and you didn't bring into that scripture all the ideas and, you know, the thoughts and all of that that we bring. And I do, we do that, don't we? All of our tradition, our history. He said, just read it. In fact, he suggested you read it five times. He said, then go to the commentaries. Uh, and he said, and you'll find sometimes you don't even need to. So I'm going to encourage you, whether you agree or disagree with the direction I'm about to go with the rest of this session together, this message, that you go back and read Esther at least a couple of times and just think as you read. That's what I did. And I have 
changed some of the things uh, that I thought about sharing with you today. Now, I read that for the first six or seven centuries after Christ, did you know there was not one commentary had been written in six centuries on the book of Esther? but on every other book of the Bible there was. Isn't that interesting? The story of Esther gave rise to the Jewish celebration Purim. And you may or may not know this family festival Purim is the celebration of this story. It is second on the Jewish calendar only to Passover in its importance and um, you know, how, how much they enjoy this. Uh, so it's, it's very popular among the Jews, one of the most beloved scriptures uh, that they have. But, and I think it's right where it should be, it's right here in the Bible, and if you've had a hard time finding it, and if you just faked it, if you just, if you just finally gave up and said, I'm just going to pretend like I'm there because I, said, I don't want to continue to turn the pages, it's right before Job, okay, right? You know, there's Job and Psalms and Proverbs right there in the middle of your Bible. Just go back, just go backward a little bit, and you'll find it. Um, But there's a serious problem with the book of Esther. God is never mentioned. In the Bible, a book, 66 books, designed to lead us to an experience of salvation and of God himself through Christ... There's this one book that stands out as unique. It never mentions God. Not once. Now, some say his name is encoded in the Hebrew text. I'm not buying that. Um, I've looked at that. Elvis is dead. Kennedy's not here. I mean, it's just, that's not true. Um, So uh, God is just simply not named in this entire 10-chapter story. Isn't that remarkable? And it is a story of salvation. Go figure. So what do we make of that? Of course, many of you live in a world where God is never mentioned either. If he's ever been mentioned in your school, maybe it was just patronizing or in a generality, but probably not in any kind of significant way. Or on your job, in your place of business, the CEO was doubtful if he ever stopped and said, well, let's pray and consider God's direction for this next business venture and how he wants to do this. And that's probably not going to happen at very uh, many places. You could probably live all the way to retirement and uh, not hear God factored into one decision or a business conversation. And what about politics? We're right in the midst of this crazy, crazy year. I've never seen anything like this. And all the candidates, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, they all say, God bless America. But I've never heard one say, God in his wisdom teaches us through Scripture to take such and such a stand, and that's what we're going to do. But of course, all that doesn't mean 
that God hasn't been at work in your school or your company or our government. And after all, you're there, right? And he's in you and he's with you. So God is still in this culture, even though he's not mentioned. Now, if there's a talking point, if there's a tweet, if there's one thing I would want you to to take away with you today, it's this. God may have not been mentioned in the book of Esther, but he was there. He was there every step of the way. And as these events unfolded, God was there. He was not absent from the book of Esther. And he is not absent from your story. He may be disguised. There may be times when you're so scared or you feel so alone or you can't come up with the solution to the problem and God is so invisible that you feel like he's nowhere within a hundred miles. You remember this. Remember this. He's in your story. He's there in the background. He sees you. He has not forgotten you. He remembers your name. And he promised that he would never leave you and he would never forsake you. Esther is a strange book to me. It doesn't even mention the name of God anywhere in the entire book. You find no miracles, no prophets showing up to deliver God's word just in the nick of time. There are no plagues sent from heaven. Nothing cool like that happens. Did you know there's not even, at least I couldn't find, one prayer, not even one prayer breathed anywhere in this entire book. As a result, it's been largely ignored and sometimes largely discarded. If you go to the shrine of the book in Jerusalem, Esther is the one book in the entire Old Testament that isn't found. Not even a fragment is found in all of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community. Not one. John Calvin, whom some of you are fond of, didn't include Esther in his biblical commentaries. And he only referenced it once in his famous institutes. Though Martin Luther, the great reformer, did include it in his Bible, he was very ambivalent about it. In fact, I found this quote. This is from Martin Luther. I am so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. <laughs> Think, you're talking about a book of the Bible. <laughs> now, if you want to bring it into contemporary times, I thought, well, who is one of the most, if not the most, particularly in my early Christian experience, influential people in my life? It would have to be Dr. Adrian Rogers the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis where I grew up. I have listened. My my mother-in-law 
Kathy's mom had these cassette tapes. They were, I'll explain it to you later if you have a question about what that is. Um, I'll send pictures to you and everything. But it's something we used to use in the old days uh, to hear recorded sound. And I listened to, I don't know how many of his sermons. And I grew and he fed me. He's preached here at Calvary before his death at least a couple of occasions. Um, He's just a powerful, written so many books. But if you go online and you look at the catalog, the sermon collection of Dr. Adrian Rogers, and he was at Bellevue for probably 30 years, there is one sermon on the book of Esther. And you almost get the feeling like he did it because he felt like he had to. <laughs> it's like, well, i got to do one on Esther. It's in there, you know. So uh, even Dr. Rogers um, didn't preach out of this book very much. And for me, that's not strange enough. This is, and it just smacks of a conspiracy theory. In the VeggieTales version of Esther... It is the only video that Bob the Tomato doesn't make an appearance at all. You tell me there's not something going on with the book of Esther. He never appears. Now, the truth is, we're uncomfortable with this book. Now, we're all right with that part where Mordecai tells her, and this is the part you know and you love, and those of you getting defensive like me, where he said this, you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this, and it's time for you to stand up and to be counted and to make a decision and to be the Savior you know, that are for our people. or moment in a situation, I said, who knows that God hasn't brought you into your company, into your family, into this moment for such a time as this. In this place in history, you're the one God's put there. And I think some of you, God has very strategically placed where you are in this moment because you're the, you're the channel, you're the, the open door to Jesus. So I give you that. But the rest of it is just strange. (laughs) And frankly, it lacks the moral clarity of, say, Daniel. I love Daniel. Uh, Daniel was written roughly in this same period. But his life, and, and during the exile, Daniel is just so clear. And he's so clean. And Daniel's just the guy. I mean, he and the Hebrew children refused to eat the king's food. Not only does he admit that he's a Jew, he demands concessions to his Jewishness. He won't bow to any other God. And when a law was passed that says you cannot pray, it doesn't affect him one bit. He wasn't showy about it. Uh, he, he didn't do anything differently. He just stayed himself. And there's not even a description in the text of Daniel 
whether he agonized over whether he should do it or not. It wasn't like that. He just goes home as usual, throws open those windows, and he prays like he always does. And he's willing to face the consequences. I like that about Daniel. Esther seems to lack that level of commitment. Her real name is Hadassah. But she goes by Esther, a Persian name which is a corruption of the name of a false deity. She doesn't admit, and I I granted that Mordecai has influenced her, but she won't even admit that she is a Jew. She keeps that hidden. She and Mordecai are comfortable in Persia. And even though under the the decree of Cyrus, all the Jewish people were given the choice, you can go home to your homeland. We're not going to stop you. You're free to leave and you can go back to the land you feel like God's promised you. Mordecai and Esther will stay. They choose to stay. They don't go. There's no record that she ever seems to pray. She never said a prayer, at least in this book. In fact, she joins a harem. And the way we read it in this text, it comes right after this description of Mordecai. It really suggests that he he encourages her to enter this national beauty contest. And this is no ordinary beauty contest. I mean, she's taken into the harem, and not only does she not refuse to eat the king's food, she's given the best of the best of the king's food for at least a year. She's put on this beauty program. And I think Esther is the only person in the entire Bible, the only woman in the Bible, where it says she had a great body. (laughs) It talks about her figure. She's so alluring, she's so attractive that in that night that she spends with the king, she wins his favor and he makes her the queen in one night. That's strange to me how she becomes queen. I think we want to read into this text, I want to read into this text, that somehow it was her purity and that it was her chastity that won the king over. And then that's, that's the way I would prefer to see this. But I really don't think that's what King Xerxes tolerated and what he was looking for. This one night with the king was intended to be And I say this with all the southern gentlemen that's in me. It was precisely what you think it was. And as the story develops in this book, uh, when, when the edict of death is put out over the Jewish people and Mordecai sends this message... Uh, to Esther, you got to help us, and you can, you're the you're in this position. You can do this. Before that passage that we referred to a moment ago, do you know what she said? She goes, "Well, you know what? Anybody that goes into the king, if you don't have an invitation and you go in before him and ask for something and he doesn't like it, the penalty is death." 
It is sure an immediate death. And he has not invited me to come in there in a month. Go tell Mordecai I said that. He said, that doesn't fit. And if you were writing a novel or you were producing a movie, you wouldn't have written it that way, would you? You would have had her go, yes, I'll go before the king. And I will, you know, she would be this heroine. She doesn't do that. She says, I'm not going in there. Go tell Mordecai, I can't do that. So they go and tell him. And then he comes back to her again and says, please, would you do it? Otherwise, we're all going to be killed. And that's when she says, Oh, all right, I'll do it. I'll go in because one way is potential death. One way is certain death. And that's where she says that famous line. And if I perish, I perish. Now I like it. And I want her to say it like, if I perish, I perish. But you almost get the feeling like, okay, fine. If I die, I die. It's on you. Mort. So that's the way, that's where we are in this story. So when you read chapter four and she's hesitated and she doesn't really want to do it and her decision to finally step up and go to bat for her people seems not to be, and I don't like saying this and I struggle with this. Last night I was reading this and I thought, I don't think I can get up and say that. And I went out and I came back in and I thought, it just looks like she was reluctant, and that this was her last move. But God began to speak into my heart because there are times when I have followed God and listened to him and gone his way and done the right thing because it was the only move I had left. It was my last option. Maybe you've been there too. It's hardly the kind of moral courage that we typically admire with her going in and spending the night with the king and her reluctance to stand on behalf of her people. It's no wonder those guys at Qumran didn't include her in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were uncomfortable with this too. We're comfortable with moral clarity. We like Daniel. We like Joseph. I remember we were talking about Vacation Bible School earlier, um, back in the day, and my first position in a church, I guess it was the first position, was as a children's church pastor, and there was a little song we used to sing, and some of you, you old-timers will remember this, Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. That's what we sing about Daniel. And I thought, what would we sing about Esther? Dare to be an Esther, dare to please the queen. Wear cosmetics, watch your figure, and you will be the queen. (laughs) I know some of you, now I'm going to get emails because I'm like, okay. It's just, I'm just telling you, it's a strange book, okay? And and, and, and if all we knew of Esther were her decision to champion the cause of her people, I would be comfortable and I would just leave everything else. That would be, but the truth is we know too much. That's amazing because the Lord does this book after book after book all through the scripture. He includes the parts we didn't want to know. He includes the details and the flaws and the quirks and 
all of that about people. We know her past. We know her compromises. We know she didn't identify with her own people. We know that she's comfortable in Persia when she had a chance to go back to her homeland and she doesn't take it. And all of these factors color our understanding of her decision. Now, I'll confess to you, I can relate to Esther's imperfections and compromises. I understand. And so I'm not here to sit in judgment on Esther because when I read her story, I have to look at my own story. And I have to remember things that I've done in times when I'm backed into a corner and then I throw my hands up. And then I say, God, all my plans have failed and I need you. My heart is broken. My account is empty. My child is sick. God, I need you. I think we're a whole lot like Esther. Sometimes we get to the place where we just have to trust God that he's going to use us in spite of our broken past. Esther has nothing to brag about back there. She's a lovely young lady in many ways, no doubt, but really, she is a hot mess. She's not where she ought to be. She's not doing what she should have been doing. She's not characterized as a woman of prayer or a woman of the word. She's just chosen to be queen. And her life is so messy. And here's what I've learned after years of living with myself and pastoring you. (laughs) Everybody's life is messy. Some of you are in messy relationships right now, or you've come out of one, or you're headed toward one. You're in a messy business deal. You're in a messy situation. You know, there are three kinds of messes. There's either the mess you made, you're living in a mess that somebody else made for you, one of your children or your boss or somebody, or you're living uh, just in the messiness of this fallen broken world with all the tragedies and the circumstances that follow bad decisions and sinful choices and tragic circumstances. Now, in just a little while, we're going to see two men who were probably drunk when they made this decision, went before the king, got it approved to annihilate all of the Jews in this land. It was the final solution. Where have we heard that before? We know of people, you know, in not so distant history who lived through the Holocaust, where Jewish people, where it was an attempt once again to annihilate an entire race and group of people. And sometimes we get caught up in that. And it's not our mess. It's not what somebody else did. It's just the mess of this broken place. Those situations in your past is not what defines you. I mean, it can prick you and prod you and push you forward and maybe force you into a, a desperate place so that you have no recourse than to once again comp- cast yourself completely on the will of God to the point where you're saying, if I perish, I perish. Have you ever prayed like that? 
I said, God, this is just killing me. If you want to kill me right now, just kill me. Just take me home. Have you ever prayed for the Lord? Just take me home, Lord, if this is going to be the situation. And Esther gets to this place where she prays, if I perish, then I perish. But I have nowhere else to go but to you. That's the woman I see in the scripture who my heart leans in toward. And I say, me too. The reality is that we often don't live life well until life's been shattered. Until your heart's been broken. Until you've been put in a place. And now we're... You know, we're far less open to God than we think when we've got it all together and there's, there's the money's there and the health is there and your accomplishments are there and you've still got options and you've still got decisions and you've attained what you want to. But you've got to trust that God's going to use you not because of what you've done, not because of what you've got, not because of your goodness. God uses you in spite of your broken past. Not only that, you've got to trust that he's going to use you in spite of the fact that you have found yourself in an imperfect place. And you're embarrassed to even pray because you think, Lord, I'm in a mess and I'm pretty much the one who got me in this mess. I had someone sharing with me a lot of their problems and they were kind of wanting sympathy. And I'm a sympathetic guy. You know, I really am. I'm a tenderhearted person. And, but as they were sharing all these, these situations, and I just listened and I said, you know, you've created 70% of your own problems. You, you did this. Now, I don't say it in condemnation or in judgment. I've been there myself. And so have you. And some still live there. So here she is. She's in Persia. She's not supposed to be there. Um, God had prophesied, you know, I will raise up my, my servant Cyrus, and he had returned the people. That was 70 years ago. Um, and here they are still there. Most sermons on Esther that I've heard focus on that phrase for such a time as this. And if you research books and messages and those kind of things on this, this is the number one title that comes up. And it's like, if you Google it, it's the first thing every time for such a time as this, that little phrase. But I think it's that preceding phrase that catches my attention because when Mordecai says to her, who knows but that you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this, he's not talking about God's kingdom. He's talking about to the Persian kingdom. He says, you've come to make things better in our country and to get this and to help people for such a... It was a political thing. It was a, it was a national thing. He says, you've come there, even at that place. He's not talking about the kingdom that we would be thinking about. It's that she's in a strange kingdom with a foreign and a pagan king, just like some of your bosses... <laughs> Some of the places you live, and Mordecai says, who knows that you've come into this company, this family, this kingdom, to this place where you otherwise ought not to be here, but who knows? Maybe you're for this time. Maybe you're the guy. Maybe you're the woman. And God's big enough, he's sovereign enough, that he can use even our tragic circumstances, even our bad decisions, 
even our sinful choices, even the dire circumstances that all that's left us with in life, in that place, he says, you know what? I'm going to use all those things to accomplish the purpose of my plan. I'm going I'm to use that. He will not waste whatever's happened to you up until this moment. There's a young lady here in Knoxville who was um, in a desperate situation. She was considering an abortion as the solution to her problem. And I asked her if she would meet with someone, and I introduced her to another lady who was just a little older than her who had been through that. Now, I could have ministered. I could have said things to her. I could have tried to sway her one direction. But when this woman sat down with her and said, I have been exactly where you are, and I made this choice. And let me tell you what God has taught me since then. And the tears just flowed, and there was hugs, and there was healing, and there was, there was something powerful because this lady had been in that place and had seen God work on the other side. Your best ministry may come out of your deepest failures. The sweetest ways that God might ever use you in your life may come out of some of the most humiliating or embarrassing or tragic circumstances that you could have lived through. And you may think, I don't want to go back. I don't want to visit that. I don't want... But if you say, God, how can you use my life? How can you take me forward? How can you help others? You're sitting there as a blessing you may not even know. Because a sovereign God is saying, wherever you go, I go before you. And sometimes it's not where you ought to be. And sometimes you wish you weren't there, but I'm with you. I am with you. So that's the big thing about this book to me is that God is not explicitly seen. He's not even mentioned. There's no prayer to him. And when Esther does decide that she's going to do what she can to go to the king and to save her people, she tells Mordecai, well, ask all the Jews to fast. She doesn't even throw in pray at at that moment. God is obscure and he's hiding in the shadows. Now, folks, this is what I want to leave you with because sometimes your vision of God and your awareness of him will be dimmed by the tragedy around you or by your own sinfulness, by the circumstances, by the pain, by the grief that envelops you. But God does his best work in the shadows, often hidden from view, obscured by this dim vision with those of us whom he's dealing with. And I think for every Daniel who's got this clear vision, you know, of the Son of Man and There's a thousand of us Esthers who come stumbling and staggering and crying, reluctantly dragged into the will of God by desperation and a lack of alternatives. God meets you there. Choose which God you're going to believe in. The God who feels bad for you and emotes with you and is sympathetic towards you, but he just really can't do anything to help you. Or the God who's so big 
that he can take your tragedies and your sorrows, even your dumb decisions, your sinful choices. He can take all of that and he weaves it into the fabric of his purpose and plan for your life and for his glory. He does it anyway. That is the God that is hidden in the story of Esther and yet is on display in every page of this book. And that's the God who will never leave you and he will never forsake you. It's the God who lives within you. That's the God we serve. It's the God who's brought you through everything in your life, your failures, your tragedy, your grief, your bad decisions, your sinful choices. He's brought you to this moment so that you can be in this imperfect place with your broken past and you can know that the King of Kings holds out not a a golden scepter, but a bloody cross. And that he is not hidden in the shadows. He's on his throne and you are safe with him. He sees you. You may not sense him or be aware of him even up to this moment. But he will not let you go. He has not walked away from you even if you've walked away from him. So the point of action, my encouragement to you, is to do what Esther's done, what I've had to do and many others. In this imperfect place, come back. Come home. Once again, lift up your voice, your hands, your face, your cry to the Lord. It's me again. I have nowhere else to go but you. If I perish, I perish. But I can't live like this. And I've got to have you in my life. He will come rushing towards you. If there are a thousand steps between you and God, you take one, and he'll take 999 to get to you.